0: Hello, fellow innovators, this is Patrick Emmons,
1: and this is Shelly Nelson,
0: welcome to the innovation and the digital enterprise podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations.
1: Today, we're welcoming Tim Alves to the show. Tim is the EVP of Product Innovation at Spins, a leading provider of retail, consumer insights, and analytics for the natural, organic, and specialty products industry. As EVP of Product Innovation, he is responsible for the technology and product strategy and leads the data governance, engineering, product management, product design, and development operations teams. Before becoming the EVP of Product Innovation, Tim held numerous other positions at Spins, including President of Retail Operations and Vice President of Product. Prior to Spins, Tim held positions at Microsoft, RightPoint, and Amazon. He launched his first software startup at the age of 20 and has co-founded another five companies after that. Welcome to the show, Tim.
0: Uh, Thanks for having me. Tim, if you don't mind, please share with our listeners a little bit more about Spins and and your role there.
2: Yeah, so Spins provides shaped insight into retail data across North America um, and soon other. But effectively, what we try to do is we take in information around what is selling, where it's selling, and align that to things that are frankly just, they're not commodities in terms of data out there. Things like whether this is keto, whether this is something that is gluten-free, whether this can be eaten if you have a peanut allergy. And by being able to take those types of insights and overlay that and correlate that against retail um, activity, we're able to help retailers, brands, investors both get an idea of what consumers are actually looking for, um, but also, you know, what trends exist overall. You know, maybe retailers are picking up something. We really help um, conventional and specialty retailers look at that market because most of the growth of what's happening isn't happening in conventional products. It's happening in products that sort of qualify for more of that specialty status.
0: That's pretty interesting stuff. Considering Chicago historically has so much experience in uh, more of a rating as well as data investigation. I think about a lot of the organizations here in Chicago that have really uh, become the focal points for many industries. Uh, how did spins get into this? Is this something that they started out with? Is it something that they pivoted to? Yeah. So spins,
2: um, spins has been around for quite a long time. Um, much longer than I've been here. I think it's, you know, it's 25, 26 years, something like that. Um, but they started very much working with specialty retailers where, you know, you take like an IRI or a Nielsen and they deal largely with more conventional, um, retail outlets. It was just an underserved market where local products, regional products, health products, things were also outside of the view of some of the conventional retailers. Um, So yeah, they were able to build a niche and sort of a moat over a long period of time to where they gained exposure and conventional companies started seeking them out for the insights and the products they weren't carrying. Um, You know, I remember seeing stats in my first year, it was double digit growth in the types of products that we monitor. While conventional products were struggling at like low single digits,
0: well, that's a, a big departure from some of the things that you know you did earlier on in your career, and um, I, I'd love to hear more about, uh, or for you to share more about more of that gaming industry experience as well. So it seems like there's a pretty interesting arc from going from the gaming industry uh, to what you're doing right now. Uh, I think people don't know how difficult and frenetic the gaming industry is. Yeah, you know, it's and it ch- it's
2: changed a lot as well since from the time whenever I got in to the time where I've been out to now, um, you know, three very different eras um, in gaming. Whenever I was getting in, it was still, you know, uh, reminds me, you watch those videos of like Elvis running into Ray Charles and running into Johnny Cash, all of them at the same studio at the same time. Like, what are the chances, right, that all the top lead hits or whatever would be in the same city at the same studio now? Almost nothing. Um, So you look at like when I was getting in, yeah, gaming was already big, but it was still a really tight knit community. You could know Mm. five or six people and you would know most of the people moving things um, out there, at least I've had an opportunity to bump into people. And it was also still, you know, the business maturity wasn't there yet. Microtransactions hadn't taken over. So you're still very much you know, I came in just after basically share where it ended, where you're getting discs in the mail and deciding what to buy and not to buy. Um, by the time I went to Amazon, which wasn't related to wanting to, leaving, you know, to leave gaming, it had much more to do with birth of my daughters and wanting to balance my time a little bit better and the unique opportunity presenting itself at Amazon to do both. Um, but by the time I left, microtransactions had completely taken over the monetization strategy for most new investment in games. And that happened at the same time where production costs in gaming just went skyrocketing. Um, before, you know, you had a few artists and some programmers and you could make a game. Now you need large teams that are you know, close to the size of like a CGI effects studio for a movie to make things that match that visual maturity. And that was where it was then. Then the indie scene started to come in. So we were one of the first to release a game on what was called Steam Greenlight, um, which if anybody's familiar, like now it's everything goes to the equivalent of Greenlight. You submit, anybody can get a game up on the Steam platform. At that time, that was entirely novel. Now with the indie scene, though, another thing that shifted is players aren't necessarily only focusing on games that have extreme high fidelity. Not everybody's chasing AAA status in terms of wanting to be the next battlefield or Call of Duty or whatever it is. There are a lot of indie games that have hand-drawn art, pixel art that's kind of retro. They focus a lot more on like gameplay and things that are unique or distinct or even social, community-based. So that shift, it's also disrupted monetization. There's a lot of backlash with users with these gotcha style, it's really gambling um, that gets built into them to monetize the games. And so now I think uh, you know my advice several years back might've been to anybody looking to get into the industry to just go in with their eyes fully open and be a little wary. Um, now I think if you're looking at it, it's, it's a lot better. Um, there's still a lot of things to work out in terms of large studios have problems with crunch. There is uh, some toxic culture um, that absolutely still exists in the gaming industry. It's not something that is equally appealing. If you're coming in as a, you know, male, female, other, like, if you're male, lots of welcoming everywhere. Other or female, no, um, not going to be the case. So there's a lot to fix, but it's gotten much better, largely thanks to indie push, the indie push.
0: That's great. That's great. It is interesting. Uh, my kids are use some of these. I think uh, where it's more user-driven content from a gaming platform, and it, it's interesting the low barrier to to getting involved. Yeah, and, uh, it, it's like Roblox. I think, Roblox, exactly. That yeah, is exactly. Uh, the yeah. if I if I'm invited to another Roblox session, I'm <laughs> I'm not participating. I don't want to participate, but it's like, Dad, we're doing this. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, uh, I'm gonna go read a book. You stay here. So. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's, it, it is interesting. And it, it, do you see it like uh, getting more people involved in, in engineering uh, or even um, from a UX standpoint? I mean, is there, is there positives of like, I know a lot of people get in, into engineering historically because of, you know, uh, family relations introduced them. And I'm just wondering, are you, from your perspective, do you see any positives of these lower fidelity platforms that are creating opportunities for for 12-year-olds, 8-year-olds, 9-year-olds to engage. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you look at a lot of the, I think,
2: writing very explicit code. This isn't something that's going to go away in like one decade, two decades, but eventually that will be something that is less common. Um, you're going to be a lot more verbal or visual in how you instruct machines. But what's great is the stuff they're doing with things like Minecraft, Roblox, others where people are jumping in and building content. They're learning how computer logic works, how to automate the world around them, right as the rise of everything getting automated around them happens. So I do think there's a lot of positive benefit um, for anyone who starts to interact with that at a young age. I also like that it's taken the concept of play, where, you know, imagination for a little while in gaming was stripped of you, right? It was almost like you were jumping in on rails, you did the thing that was designed. Now they're interacting with games; and their imagination's running free again. So it's not really curtailing any of those instincts that I think were, you know, at least getting stunted um, in the past. So yeah, I see a lot of positives. That's awesome.
0: With regard to, you know, in in your current role and your experience in building these products, building these games, building these, you know, B two C engagements, you know, we talked previously about. Um, product market fit, right timing, you know, what is your experience um, from creating that team, that product, right time, um, finding that chemistry? Is there, is, what do you, What do you think it takes? Because it, it, from our my perspective, it just seems there's a lot of luck involved there.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, there are a lot of things. So, you know, my kids and I all at the same time decided to learn to play the guitar. And you find, I mean, there's just, there's not a shortcut other than just practice, repeating something over and over and over until the thing that was really difficult becomes second nature and now you're tackling something new that's difficult. And it's true of everything, including that, finding the chemistry, product market fit, knowing how to evaluate ideas. But at the same time, you also have a lot less opportunity for repetition. Right. unlike playing the guitar where you can sit there and strum, you know, 10,000 times over the course of a week, you can't try 10,000 different startups over the course of a week. I mean, you're getting very few chances. So there it helps a lot to find ways to build a framework that institutionalizes or almost productizes the learning of other people so that the thousands of things that have been tried, you at least get some, you know, orthogonal benefit um, of all of that experience. So I think that's where a lot of the product leadership, startup leadership, all the books on these topics, that's where they're trying to come from. Like, how do I take all of the things that I've learned and now make it something that can be commoditized and shipped and transferred and shared? Um, and I think it's important for people who are interested to know that, you know, you're going to want to do a lot of reading. I mean, there, you know, I don't know that there are degrees and like startups or degrees in product really available. But it's a similar style learning experience where if you want to be great at it, you need to look at it as there's probably years worth of learning before you feel really comfortable that you've absorbed the lessons that others have absorbed that you can avoid. Beyond that, it's figuring out what your role is in it. Some people are meant to and have the right desires, right? the passions to be like the front facing person. In a startup environment, they're the ones who are going to want to be giving the keynote speeches standing up in front of a projector or a large crowd and talking. Others are going to be really great at quietly sitting behind the curtains and making the machine run. Sometimes you'll find someone who's great at both, but it's much more rare than it is to find someone who is great at one or the other. And so figuring out there's more roles than that, but which one am I like, where do my passions align in a way that makes sense So not just my wants. You know, sometimes we want to be great at something that we actually don't desire to be great at. It's strange because our, our motivations come from the outside sometimes in those things. Like I want to be seen as X, therefore I'm going to become great at X. When in reality, if you lean into what you're truly good at and what really drives you and motivates you and things where you don't have to be driven to do it by outside factors, you have a much higher likelihood of success. So I think it's a combination of those things. Um, I don't think there's, you know, not much of a shortcut If you, I think there's as much risk in getting lucky with success on your first try as there is with catastrophic failure on your first try, because when you have a great first success, just like with failure, we're not really great at identifying why, like why did we succeed or why did we fail on that first try? It takes a few of those in a row to find those common factors or themes.
0: That's great. I I do want to get into the, uh, good versus unlucky, uh, but I do think that authentic piece that you touched on. I just had a conversation earlier today with somebody. They're like, "Well, I don't know how I fit in this market. I don't know what how I'm gonna um, how I'm gonna present myself. How I'm gonna It's like you already know, because what you really need to do is just get past that pretense of you've got to figure it out. What you really have to do is just my perspective. And and I appreciated Shelly what your thoughts are. Is it it really gets down to like being your authentic self and like that figuring out how you fit in the market to your point tim is is like first is you got to get rid of that shield that thing where you think you're you're you know you're participating in this community in this way where it's like if that's not your authentic self if it's some i call it the shield right the body armor Mm -hmm. right yeah Uh, so
1: it's interesting, too, because uh, where I'm working right now, uh, we're implementing the 80-20 methodology in our businesses and essentially, you know, a Pareto principle, just focus on what really matters. And I think what both of you are saying is, yeah, find out what you're really great at and focus on that one thing and you'll be great. Um, you also reminded me of Malcolm Gladwell. I think he's the one that said uh, 10,000 hours is how much practice you need to be, become an expert in in something, so... Thank you for sharing that.
2: Yeah, and I think you're, you know, you're right in that it's much more important to figure out how to amplify the things that are both natural talents, but also the separate group where it's not a talent yet, but it is a passion that you Mm -hmm. actually feel self-motivated to become skillful, right? I think a lot of people wait to find, do I have a talent in this before they determine whether they want to develop skill? That's a mistake. But you do want to make sure that you don't have something that's like an inverse, like For me, this is an atypical experience because I tend to not like the stage. I don't like being the spotlight or listen to me person. So this is an unusual experience. It's not something that I would lean into. But what really helped was by watching a few different environments and watching success happen with very, very different leaders, you're able to separate like, oh, all successful CEOs look like this. All Mm -hmm. successful CPOs look like that. It's just not the case. Like there are some common habits, but a lot of that has to do with their thinking, not their personality traits. Or like, are they great at public speaking versus one-on-one intimate conversations? And that's not really the dividing line. So,
1: Tim, you should uh, probably read the book Quiet if you haven't already. It's all about the power of introverts. Love that. Book. Of introverts. Yeah. I've not,
2: but I, I, you are now the third person I think to recommend it. So I haven't read it. I have purchased it
0: it's just (laughs) so to get into that good versus unlucky conversation right tim uh tell us your 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 philosophy uh i really enjoyed our conversation earlier when we talked about that so uh if you don't mind just taking the reins and running with it i'd appreciate it no no worries best of all
2: worlds is good and lucky if you're good and lucky your life just feels like a dream um you know congratulations to you but if you had to choose between being bad and lucky and good and unlucky, I would prefer good and unlucky. And good and unlucky, you learn the means by which you can overcome bad luck. You start to really figure out like where, where is the world in your control versus where is it outside of your control. And that actually helps optimize your thinking. It helps optimize your work. It helps make sure that the relationships you build don't become transactional, right? Like you really learn how to develop meaningful relationships, meaningful work habits, meaningful thought models. If you're bad and lucky, you don't learn much (laughs) and you become very dependent on a cast around you to overcome those things for which luck previously gave you an out. Now you need people around you to give you the out. And that is such a it becomes such a toxic relationship because it's very much like, you know, somebody walking in front of you, dropping tacks and Legos on the floor and people behind knowing, right? We gotta bend over and pick all this stuff up all the time. And that's, it's just not healthy. Not to mention if that cast of supporting characters leaves or if your luck runs out, if you had too much good luck and been bad for too long, I've not seen great success with people being able to really separate like, ah, uh, I was lucky. You know, it's just, it's not a realization a lot of people come to. So early early in someone's career, it's not that I don't wish them success, but I certainly wish for them to become good rather than lucky. I would much rather talk to someone that's had three or four failures, but has genuinely learned from it and has an obvious upward trend than I would someone whose first thing was a success, their second thing was a success. I'm still skeptical. You know, like if your first and second were successes, it could just be that you're really great and you're also lucky, mm-hmm. uh, it also might mean that you've had some really fortunate luck. And you know, there's going to be some hard lessons ahead.
0: Yeah, that early success does create a lot of blind spots. Yes, it does. You know, and I, uh,
2: <laughs> without naming the company, I did work with a company that had a product that they brought in and released in one market they felt because it was so wildly successful that they could just repeat that process. And of the 15 to 20 products that they repeated the process, the first was the only one that succeeded. Mm. And it was just wow. total chaos within the company where no one could really figure it out. And it turns out, you know, it reminds me like a, a thing that I've been talking a little bit about with my product org and some others lately has been the difference between purpose thinking and causal thinking. Causal thinking, it's really easy to misattribute all of the outcome to one factor. Purpose thinking, you don't do that. Like, you you don't attribute cause and effect. You're just thinking about whether something has utility based on its purpose. Mm. I think it's sort of the same with getting lucky too early. You don't really know all the reasons you got lucky. And if you can't split those apart,
0: that's tough. well, wow. wow. Yeah, there's... Uh... A lot there, and a really great stuff. Uh, purpose versus causal thinking, and uh, the the in, you know the individual bias to self congratulation is, is really a big challenge. Of like, oh, why were we successful? Because we're so smart, right? Because we're is. so handsome, we're good cool looking, yeah, right. And here's but, the
2: thing: if you've been really successful, you've often had people around you that also succeeded because of it. They're a lot less likely to tell you the reasons why you succeeded in honest fashion. But I promise you, if you fail and other people failed around you, there is no limit to the number of people who will give you very raw, truthful feedback on the ways in which (laughs) you help them fail. So while they're similar in our inability to like be introspective, you at least have much better outside information coming in that gives you a much more to work with when you're being introspective, hopefully.
0: It's an interesting thought. And my first thought is yeah, when you make mistakes and and somebody's just so grateful to, to share with you, like how you screwed up. (laughs) <laughs> I also don't, I, I don't instantly, uh, I don't know, adopt their, their feedback, right? It's still to your point of like, you still have to put it through that, right? Like it could be somebody who just really is ha- you know, having a healthy dose of fraud there where it's like, nah, I'm just happy you failed, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, the,
2: you're, you're absolutely, you can't take it at face value, but it is just nice to have it,
0: right? Yeah. It's at
2: least nice to be able to sit back and consider it.
0: Right. You got something to think about. Like, is he completely full of baloney? Right? Like, or is there some truth to that? I had perfect case. I had a client who said, you know, the problem pad is you guys, you know, you're, you're this is many, many years ago, you know, we're, we're so much more professional now. So don't worry about this story. It's all, it's, everything's changed. But like, he's like, you know, you guys, uh, you're a niche company and you're kind of a boutique and you know, that's the way we're going to work with you. And I'm like, what does that mean? And he's like, well, you know, you're not like enterprise ready. And I'm like, okay. Obviously offended, obviously, but I also I, I think it might have been twenty minutes before I'm in the car thinking, now why did he say that, right? Yeah, and I think you know, is there some truth to that? And should we hold ourselves? Funny part is I saw the guy like six months later at our, an event, and he's like, he totally forgot he even said it. I said, hey man, I really took that to heart, and I want to say thanks for for giving me that feedback. He's like, I said what? Yeah. I'm like, oh, so you're just out <laughs> to hurt me? That's cool. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. genuine assessment. Like, how many times you hit somebody with this cudgel? that day right where it's like uh apparently this is just your beating stick so but i i do think it's relevant to your point of like uh you know the you got to take those lumps early like we we talk about it i've started three companies and and having mistakes early on are are you got to like count them as blessings right like you're becoming anti-fragile every time you take the hit right like you're 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 going to grow as you as you said if you're learning from it and growing from it if you're just taking the hit, like running through a brick wall, obviously that's not very valuable, but it's. Yeah.
2: And there's, there's a limit as well. Like if somebody has a string of eight straight failures, there's probably a problem, you know, it's, right. it's actually probably not luck. Like at this point you've obviously contributed to, but if you've got failure, failure, success, success, failure, success, success, like that is not an atypical pattern and it shouldn't terrify someone to see some failures in somebody's past.
0: No yeah it's, uh, yeah and even with the like eight failures if you're betting big on those eight like if you're going like eight like small bets and you're failing yes i, I think it's definitely time to like just assume you're not good at this <laughs> but if it's like you're, you're swinging for the fence it's huge and it's like look big payoff i know what i'm doing this is intentional right i think those are those are places where you go okay they're just this their their coefficient for risk is way beyond normal people Right. And they're just okay with taking the hits, you know, and it's like, uh, but I, to your point, uh, that's superhuman ability to endure just <laughs> the destruction of other people's careers, money, time, right? Like, yeah, you're, you're borderline, you know, psychological narcissistic. Somewhere around
2: five through eight in that failure chain, is when I would start recommending that person pursue solo endeavors. (laughs) Continue to swing big, but maybe contain the damage.
0: Yeah, (laughs) your wake of damage is a little bit more than I think you should be spreading (laughs) to others, right? It's like, how many marriages are you going to go through on this one? (laughs) Awesome, awesome. Another topic that I really, I I appreciate your, uh, position on in your opinion, your experience is, you know, product thought leadership, right? Like it's such an important part of innovation, about creation, about products, about especially how every industry is kind of moving to that approach of thinking, right? Even if historically you were a manufacturing company where it was, you know, it, it wouldn't have like this product manager, product owner, product leadership approach. Everybody sees how important it is to create this type of structure, to create somebody who's more responsive to the market, to their clients, to the potential opportunities, more so than I've ever witnessed in my life. Um, And you've been doing it forever. So really would love to get your perspective on, on where it's at, where it's going, challenges and opportunities.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think having just started trying to learn an instrument maybe provides a a little bit more approachable analogy for everyone but it's a lot like if everything that was out there about teaching you how to play the guitar was just like here's the neon method of strumming and here's I mean, all these very wild different techniques that you hear about and you can watch videos that's not actually how you learn to start playing guitar if you start trying to do that way you'll make no progress because You don't even know why they're doing the thing that they're describing how to do it at best, you're going to be able to memorize the method. But that's just memorizing some language and finger placement. It's not learning the why. It's not getting any fundamentals. And I think a lot of what you see in product leadership is that because it feels like a very approachable subject, that it's obvious that you know, you know, we're all consumers. And so being consumers, we feel informed around the best version of this product would be the one that makes me happiest. Right? So we, we take that sort of mindset into the product world and think, well, of course, I know what products would be good because I know what products I would want. And there's an entire discipline, though, around how do you go from what I want to what all want and away from what want down to need and away from just need to need and willing to exchange value to address, right? Like that's a final third step. So a lot of product thought leadership, though, it's obviously built by people who very deeply understand products. And the audience that can make great use of it is probably those who also already very much understand product, but it's being consumed and purchased and reused by folks who really need to just learn how to hold a pick and do some ACD chord, right? Like really simple stuff. So you get it into these environments though and you see it in practice and what you get are strategy decks that are nothing but a bunch of things we're all gonna go do. And it's just like, let's go win, like, okay. that's not really a strategy but yeah let's go in at everything and you get things around product leadership in terms of well we're going to do a lean canvas and then you look at the lean canvas and there was no work put into it whatsoever there's no backup information it's just somebody's assumptions laid out in a form and in a table in the form um people say oh yeah i wrote a six pager and you look and yeah they've got a fact but none of the questions are questions you had they were just questions that you know addressed some shortcoming in the writing of the document and the six pager has no real argument either. It's almost a just so story, right? Like X needs Y, X needs Y. So we're going to build Y, but it doesn't describe why they need X, right? It doesn't get in any of the purposes there. So product leadership, thought leadership, it's a lot like, um, you know, learning to run by watching parkour videos. It's not really all that useful for sprinting across a room. It looks really fancy and it helps sustain an industry that's around teaching product. And I get it. You know, like if, if I were going to set up a studio teaching guitar, I wouldn't only have how to hold a pick and A, C, and D, and whatever chords. I would have all the things. But that doesn't mean that everybody should be consuming and trying to reuse some of those things or thinking that in practice, that's actually what's going to lead to good product execution. They are tools and they're guides, at the same times have very specific uses but they're not generally applicable.
0: And if you don't know what parkour is, Google parkour office, because uh, the episode yes. of the office with parkour is maybe the best one of all time.
2: <laughs> Which is very similar to how it would look if most people tried
0: exactly. the product
2: leadership stuff that they see that is parkour like in their office. It would have a very similar relationship to the real thing.
0: Very disruptive, not a lot of value. <laughs> exactly. Very performative though. Right. Draws a lot of attention. Impressed.
2: It's going to look amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, you can end up doing a lot of harm to your company by bringing those things in before the company is really aware of how to use them because the company begins to associate product discipline with over analysis, overly complex, not enough focus on customers, not enough results. And then suddenly it's not just that elaborate stuff that you brought in that gets the bad rap. It's all product.
0: So who do you, you know, when you think about um, focusing and, and shall we touch uh, the 80-20 rule, what is that 80 for product leadership? What do, what do you, if you said, hey, uh, you should be doing, focusing more on this.
2: I think the person who best embodies it out there to give like a broad reference is probably Shreyas Doshi. Um, his advice is very, Useful in broad contexts. It's not a lot of like, here's the precise Miro diagram that you can go fill in information to go find. It's stuff around how to think. And I think that's where the general useful product work is. It's around how to think about things and then how do you communicate that thinking. You know, you could say, instead of saying purpose versus cause, you could say teleology versus etiology that would sound a lot fancier. All of a sudden you sound like, ooh, professor, what are you talking about there? But it's really just purpose versus cause, right? And so sometimes just as a test in some environments, I'll start with the overly whatever to see if anybody bites. And when they do, then you immediately bring it back down. So different audiences need different things. Sometimes to get the point across, you have to start with what sounds overly complex. Um, But I really think it comes down to the thinking, like purpose versus cause thinking, which is problem versus solution thinking is so critical, I think, to a product organization. If you get focused on solutions, a lot of bad things happen. It's not just the product suffer, the organization suffers as well. If two people are fighting over which solution is best, there isn't a a way for everyone to win. It's a zero sum game. Like somebody's idea gets used, somebody's idea loses. And now that fixation on the solution has caused morale problems, not just product problems. But if you start with a problem focus, if you add five people to the understanding of a problem, you just get five people's worth of additional understanding around the problem. And solutions become this fungible, disposable asset that as customers change, as the market evolves, as the people you have on your team change, they can can come and go. You don't have to fixate so much on did my solution win, Did my product understanding from a problem perspective add? The answer is always yes, unless you've done bad work, which nobody's going to do. Um, so yeah, I think those types of lessons are the great ones to really build in. And then the second is make sure that you give your product team a really basic framework to force the right thinking in the right, in the right order. So I've seen a lot of teams that start off with maybe an agency background. You know, They've been doing a lot of work directly for clients and they migrate to becoming a product company, but they can't get rid of the addiction to building everything visually first presenting it, getting buy-off from the final user, and then going back and asking hard questions. But the reality is, and certainly in terms of efficient use of your product resources and dev resources, you can iterate through things so much faster in just plain text through writing documents, asking the right questions Hmm. to resolve a lot of those things that become gotchas later when you've had a design start such that really the first step actually needs to be the writing. And to make that effective, you can provide, you can look up and find or even create templates that force the right thinking in the right order. So I like to start with for everyone, and i learned this at Amazon, but I brought it with me everywhere. Start off with a PR. And the reason you wanna start off that way is not because press releases are magic, but because thinking about why a customer would care is a magical starting point. It is why you should do anything. Um, if, you, if your press release sounds like something that would bore a customer, your product will bore a customer, right? Like there's just, there's not much there. So starting with that is important, you know and then having that progression of the idea going back to, through some of the main questions which are, okay, is it worth doing? We know that customers will be excited, now is it worth it? Like, is there a market there where there's a value exchange possible? Then your next question is, can we win? Like, it's not just can someone win, but can we win? You know if i were wanting to go out and create a netflix competitor am i really in a position to do that like the answer is no i don't have any of the industry contacts right so as spins i would not recommend that we create a netflix competitor even if you could come up with the best idea for one it's the wrong place and then finally you get down to and should we win and the should we win is a strategic question it is like what is the purpose of our company what is the thing that would be advanced by us doing so? Are we distracting ourselves from the core purpose? Are we mm. weakening our position by going out and winning? And You can create that chain then of thinking by having those questions be part of your documentation early. You at least force the conversations to happen. You know, you, it'll take time to make it great work that comes out of it. But I think those are valuable product lessons you can take away that don't require you to have a very specific type of Miro diagram or
1: else
0: it might be it's great advice yeah I, I i i be totally transparent i've advocated for just even drawing something on the back of a napkin right just uh, the visual component but i hear what you're saying of like some of these questions would make some of them i think uh for we people know right like should we start that netflix competitor It's like, you know it, but you don't know why you know it, You you, right? And I think that's a critical component. It's like, so let's let's talk about like, yeah, I've used the term uh, myself about like uh, focusing on what your heritage is. Like, so you're looking at new products or new markets or whatever. It's like, so for us to win, why is this important? And I, I use the term heritage, like there's gotta be something in our background that has given us this opportunity that we are the rightful heirs of this, right? That this is something we should be growing into, you know, the Blockbuster story is clearly there of like, they were focused more about laced fees, right? So they should have been Netflix, right? Somebody in that room should have said it, but it jeopardized their profit stream, which was obviously their their downfall. But, um, you know, it's a really interesting question when it comes down to, you know, are we the ones that should be doing this? Is this something we can win at? Yeah, the visual model for that is, you know, draw a point where you were
2: and are now draw a point where you believe the company needs to be you know to win in five years if the thing you're doing isn't somewhere on that line closer to the where we need to be you might be either doing it too late or if it's way off the line it might actually be a distraction right you really want to plot those things that actually advance you towards getting where you want to be if i've seen companies make the mistake of well it would be great to have another $3 million in revenue. So even though this isn't part of getting to our future, we're going to go tack it on. And then before you know it though, you have 15 $3 million opportunities that are now 50% of the effort happening at the company, none of which are driving you towards that end destination, all of which might be pulling you in different directions. And suddenly the company starts to feel directions you know, people don't really know why we're doing any of the things we're doing other than money. And just the acquisition of revenue can't be a company's mission or you won't win over time.
0: Awesome. So we save, uh, we have this last question. Shelly, if you want to ask it, go right ahead.
1: Um, yeah, would love to know who your mentors are.
0: You know, that's, that has
2: shifted over time. I would say that you know, early on, um, I had more non-business mentors than business mentors. I mean, people who were much more focused on just how to grow up from being a kid to an adult in a way that mattered. And that lasted quite a while. Um, there were people who I interacted with on a business of who just wouldn't be known, they were people who, if you're listening to this for whatever, for whatever reason you still remember me, then I worked with you. And yeah, you probably remember to your office quite a bit um, and asking questions. I would say when it started to become formal, um David Dom, who's now a CPO at Cars.com, was someone that I continue to have a great deal of respect for. Um, he was fantastic in some of those startups working together just a lot to learn from him. At um, Amazon, I would say Mike Frazini, um, Ethan Evans, those folks, I, I would hesitate to call it a mentor mentee relationship because they had a lot of responsibility. But I absolutely look to them in our conversations, the one on ones, to really walk away with how did they distill things so quickly? Um, in the current environment, I would say the person I interact with most on that basis is David Navam, who is one of the co-founders of Spin Ventures. Um, He's just a, I've met a lot of people. Now at 43, he is uniquely incredible. Um, When it comes to product leadership, I would say the person who makes me feel so intimidated that I sometimes have a hard time getting started writing and producing content is who I mentioned earlier, who is Shreya Stoshi. Um, so I would not again consider it a a mentor mentee relationship, but I absolutely believe he is one of the best at succinctly describing how to approach certain things from a thought perspective.
0: Awesome, awesome! It's uh, great stuff. Well, I think uh, we're gonna wrap it up here. Uh, I would. Just want to say thank you so much for for being on the show today. I uh, really appreciate you sharing your experience, your background, uh, your thoughts, and your wisdom. <laughs> You're quite welcome. I was waiting for like a, a drum, like a boom on the wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a pleasure. Thank you. For Maybe
1: that. we need more special effects, Patrick. Uh,
0: we're going to work on that. That's uh, that's on the roadmap. So we <laughs> got. Uh, we're driving to that. Uh, so, but yeah, we also wanted to thank, uh, you, our listeners, we really appreciate everyone uh, taking the time to join us and listen to this episode.
1: And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This episode was sponsored by dragon spears and produced by Dante 32.